this episode is going to be a bit different uh, with Connor. And Connor helped create Workflow Foundations. He created the Ableton Workflow Bible, which we've just launched. We're going to talk about in this episode for a bit. Uh, and, and he's working with EDMProd full-time now. Connor, how's it going? Good, how's it going, Sam? That's really good, man. I'm on coffee number two. It's about, oh, what's the time? Quarter to 10. And... Yeah, it's, it's sunny outside, good Auckland weather. Um, nice. It won't be sunny for long, of course. But yeah, things are good, man. And the last time we did an episode like this uh, with the podcast was was with Levi early on. Uh, so those of you listening who've been following since the beginning will remember that there used to be uh, two episodes a week, I think. And one episode would be a like a talk show about a certain topic or a set of topics. The other would be an interview. Uh, and Levi helped out in the beginning. He actually just got married in the weekend. So if you're listening to this, Levi, congratulations. Um, but yeah, it has been a while since I've done like a non-interview episode, which is awesome. Nice little change. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so there will be some people out there who who know you, who've seen your name around, but for those who haven't, uh, who are you and why are you on the podcast and, and why are you working with EDM Prod? So I joined EDM Prod about seven months ago with a cold email to Sam asking to work with him, um, <laughs> which I don't know how it worked. But so I've been producing music for about five years. I went to Icon Collective. I've got kind of like a Latin pop project called Breakfast in Vegas, which is going pretty well. And then outside of that, obviously, my work with EDM Prod. That's awesome. I think we're going to get to Icon Collective because I know a lot of people will have questions about that. But this is a Q&A episode and, and we're going to cover a bunch of questions that were asked. Um, so you've got a question list up. Yes. Why don't, we, why don't we get going? Cool. So the first one was a question on Facebook that I thought we should start with from Tyler Hart. So... Tyler asked, this question is always talked about without getting an answer, but what kind of income can I expect from today's music business? It's changed so much. And he's just talking about like, you know, what are the different levels of success and like what figures could you expect and what would it take to be earning enough of a living on a monthly basis? That's a really good question. And uh, (laughs) I think it requires quite a complex answer because it's a complex issue. Obviously, and this has been true for pretty much all of history, there is a lot of money to be made in the music industry. There's a reason why uh, some managers, not all, but some own expensive cars and expensive clothes because uh, they manage artists who are essentially products and make a lot of money. Some artists will make a lot of money and then there's a lot of artists who people don't really know at all who do make livable incomes which I think is not talked about enough. Uh, so there are in the US and New Zealand, there are d- people who just DJ and they make a full-time income. They're not even like, they don't even make music, but they make enough to live off, maybe 70, 80K a year. Uh, so there's that. In terms of whether it's harder now to, to make that kind of money or harder to make money in the industry, I don't know, uh, maybe, but I'm not convinced because I think there's more opportunity especially with the internet and i think with that is it might be harder to make it as an individual artist on your own but there's more money in the music industry than ever before and there's so many different ways that you can make a living outside of just touring and releasing music and i think kind of like you said with like people that make a living off djing there's so many other different avenues and streams of income that you can have outside of just playing shows which i think a lot of people see as the only way that you can make a living, especially in like an EDM context where they're like, oh, nobody makes money from music anymore. Screw Beatport. You have to be playing shows. Yeah, I think that's very true. It's it's kind of this, uh, because in the past you could make money from record sales. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's, who's that music industry guys? Bob something. He has like emails newsletter. He sends it out daily. I I forgot his name. Anyway. He wrote about like the music industry today. He said, you can make money off Spotify. If you're going to take that route, like you need to be making pop music basically. And you need to be getting into like the 6 million plus plays. Um, Then you'll start being able to make money. 
Like it's, it's all about streams, of course. So you can do that, but not like you used to be able to. I think that I totally agree with what you just said. A lot of people think there's one cutout approach, which is uh, make music, get some big releases, go on tour, and then make like 30K a show. I think that's the like the way to make the most money for sure. Um, I don't know how you can make 100K a month doing anything else. Um, maybe ghost production, maybe, but that would be pretty hard. But you don't need that kind of money to make a living. Um, I, I think that's the top of the top, you know? Yeah, that's only a small percentage of the people that are actually yeah. successful. One thing that I want to go back to that you mentioned was Spotify. I know as people that are able to exclusively make a living off Spotify and you know, it's definitely for more pop and urban friendly genres because those do a lot better on mm. Spotify and streaming in general. Like go to SoundCloud and look at all the top streamed songs. It's all going to be hip hop songs. But, you know, there's definitely mm. money to be made. It may be difficult getting your start in Spotify or Apple Music, but they do pay out pretty well. And I feel like a lot of the artists like they say, hey, go to Spotify because they know that they're going to be getting monetization there and they know that there's a good amount of money that can mm. come from those. So obviously it might be difficult to build enough of a following an organic following to be able to get enough plays to make a living. But you know, it's still, still definitely there. Yeah. And it's, and it's one part of it. Uh, and I think, I, I don't know, like I've seen people do this. They might make a third of their money from Spotify, then like a third from merchandise. So especially in the production community, you have artists, producers who most of the audience are producers. So um, take like a Mr. Bill or Ill Gates, like those guys yeah. make a lot of their living from the educational stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they still make a ton, like, I don't know how much actually, but a lot from like playing shows. I think that's one change recently is that, you know, making a living from one source of income might be a little bit difficult, but having multiple streams of revenue is kind of like the way to go. You know, making money, like you said, from ghost production, making a little bit on Spotify, monetizing off YouTube or SoundCloud, and then sample back production. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Second part to the question was, what does it take to get to that level or to make a living? That's very hard to answer because, I don't know, it's kind of a paradox for me. It, it It's harder than you think, but it's easier than you think because like, there are people out there who legitimately think that they're going to become the next Martin Garrix. If you think that uh, you have, I'm just going to be blunt, like you, you don't have a good perception of reality because like it's I don't know if you can plan to be the next number one DJ I think that's like unrealistic there's just way too many things that need to fall into place for something like that to happen yeah like there's a reason like yeah you know I'm sure like the top 30 of the DJ mag hasn't shifted much just the same it's been the same names for the past four or five years because all these guys came up in like the EDM bubble of like 2012 and there's not a lot of room these guys aren't getting off the main stage anytime soon these guys aren't retiring exactly but but should you aim to be you know part of the top 100 for sure and i think there's definitely value in that like setting your goals super high uh, i heard the other day actually and and i'm not going to get political but uh ted cruz wanted when he was like age 10 wanted to be the president you know and like he worked towards that his whole life pretty much and he isn't but like you get closer than most people will ex- exactly so i think there are definitely people out there who can do that who can set that high goal and just work towards it. For a lot of people though, it puts an immense pressure on, which makes it hard to do almost anything. With that, it's setting realistic expectations. Like you can want that and that can be your goal, but you can't be devastated if that doesn't happen. Yes, exactly. You know, let's just say your only goal, you know, let's just say you release a song on SoundCloud and you want 10,000 streams. If you don't get that, you can't be devastated. You know, obviously your goal is to get as much exposure and traction as you can, but it's okay to shoot for that because it's going to make you work harder. But at the same time, you can't get let down and let that drag you down if you don't always reach those goals. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to answer because it does take a lot of work, but a lot of people also see it as unattainable. Uh, so there's kind of two camps there that everything is going to be easy. Like I've had emails from people who are like, um, can I do this in six months? And they've just got into producers like, no, dude, just, just make music. <laughs> um, and then there's the other camp who's like, kind of which which we've seen kind of disillusioned with everything because they see these people get to the top who aren't that hard working or who don't make that 
good of music uh, and that can be discouraging and it's like wow the game is rigged i have no chance and that's also uh, a false view as well like for sure there's there's complexities and it's not like the word fear doesn't really come into it but yeah it's, it's kind of somewhere in the middle there i think i think um in one of your previous podcast interviews with Seth the sky he had a really good quote that i think is related to this that i'd like to hear your thoughts on that was before you get started with music you should figure out what your goal is if your goal is to make a living you should treat your career with that in mind if your goal is to only make the music that you want to make that's okay too just be realistic about your expectations and that was kind of in the context of him talking about how he knows and he thinks that he makes kind of cheesier kind of like happy go fun music but he likes it and he knows that this is going to be a little bit more commercial and it's going to sell a little bit better but he's come to terms with that and because of that he's currently on his like first um, u.s american tour so he understands that like this might not be the exact exact thing that i want to be making but if i just move a little bit left to center and then instead of saying hey fans come meet me i'm an artist go a little bit closer to them. And because of that, he's able to make a career off of it. I think that's a crucial point. And and one thing that really annoys me is when that's kind of looked down upon or that's kind of considered selling out, uh, which is not like that has been what artists do for a long, long time is see what's happening and make music or like go to the audience. Like you just said, instead of waiting for the audience to come to them, there are exceptions to that as well. But like, there's nothing wrong with making your music sound a little bit more commercial or a little bit more easier to understand and listen to so that you'll reach a wider audience. If you're still enjoying it, awesome. It's not selling out. It's called being smart, in my opinion. I think with that, like when I see situations like that, when those types of problems arise, I think about if this one thing is going to be the difference between me having a career and me living in my parents' basement, is it worth it? And I feel like a lot of people don't want to sacrifice that, but then they're still going to be working at, you know, Denny's working a server job. Like if that's going to, if that's the one thing, if you maybe shifting away from your hybrid trap and then going towards something a little bit more commercial (laughs) that you could monetize off of, if that, if just that one change is going to be the difference between you making a living and you not, you have to kind of ask yourself, is that what I want to be doing? And I think for a lot of people, they say, no, they're not willing to sacrifice that. But because of that, they're sacrificing their chance and opportunity at a real career. It's kind of arrogant that the people who fall in the camp where they're like, no, I'm not going to change. I'm just going to keep making this music. And I'm going to do that because I'm like, I have integrity as an artist and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Like this kind of arrogant. It's kind of arrogant because it's, it's, oh, people will come to me because I'm making magic. People think it's such a paradox that you can't make music for you and make it for other people at the same time. Obviously, that's the ideal, and there's few artists that are able to do it, but people are like, there's no way that I can do that. It's not the same thing. Like, I can't, I'm not going to sell myself out to the industry. One thing that I was thinking about when I read this question was an old podcast interview with The Glitch Mob on Tim Ferriss. Did you listen to that? Yeah, a great interview. So there's so many good nuggets of information in there, but he talked about one thing that I did not know about The Glitch Mob was... So it was essentially like three decently successful DJs and producers, and I'm sure they were like just making a living, but nobody had really too big of a name for himself. And they kind of created that project with the idea of being kind of pop friendly and sync friendly. So they almost created the project like, hey, I want to create something that will last. And they know that they make kind of, I don't want to say simpler music, but kind of easy to listen to music, which is why their music is in so many different commercials. But they kind of made that in mind because they wanted a more sustainable career in the industry. And they like consciously made that decision. And I think it's important to understand that like sometimes like that's what it takes to get to that point. Like you kind of have to sacrifice some of yourself if you really do want that success and the success of the guys that you see on Instagram every day. And and you can still be respected like like the glitch mob in the production community uh, idolized, you know, their music is still insanely good. Yeah. And, and you can, you can say the same about like Skrillex, you know, like um, very well done, like a well-engineered, great sound design. Even that song with Justin Bieber, which was like simpler than his previous stuff, still extremely good from a production standpoint and, and still respected in the community. I would say he's one of the best producers out. Um, people will disagree with me, but 
I'll stand by that. On that note, one of the, it will be coming in like two, two weeks or so, interview with Bonnie and Clyde, they did the same thing as the Glitch Mob. Like they knew from, like from the start, they kind of planned out what they were going to be, what the image was going to be, what their music was going to be like, who it was going to appeal to, and its sustainability. Next question. All right. So we got a question on Facebook from William Davis, which essentially says, what did you guys do or what does it necessarily take to learn sound design? And then he talked about both with synths and with the post-processing. And then also, are there any third-party plugins that we swear by? Uh, You can probably answer this question better than I can because I'm not great at sound design, but I think one thing I did to, to learn was I would take screenshots of a preset that was already made, like maybe a default one or from a third-party pack. So I'd take screenshots. If there's multiple screens to the synth, like there is in Serum, uh, I'd take you know two or three screenshots. And then I'd have them on an external monitor or another screen, and I would remake them, like looking at the screenshot with the sound and kind of play through it while I'm remaking it and seeing how certain knobs affect the sound. So I would do that like every day. And that helped a lot, I think. Like just just remaking. But beyond that, yeah, not not that much. What about for you? I think the best answer that I've heard to this was from one of Seamless's videos where they asked him how he got as good as he is at sound design. And for those of you who don't know Seamless, he is a YouTube educator, the go-to god for FL Studio and anything bass. But he talked about how one of the reasons he can hear a sound and recreate it is because he's made something similar to that before. So kind of before the whole YouTube, you know, music education market, there weren't tutorials. So when he wanted to try to recreate a sound, he would just spend hours and hours in his VSTs trying to figure out how to do it. And through that, just through the experimenting and processing, he made some cool sounds. He maybe didn't need to use them until later, but because he knew his synthesizers inside and out and he knew what everything did and the exact sound that everything has, he's able to hear a sound and kind of pick it apart because he's made something similar to that before or he knows his tools well enough to make something like that. And I think for me that one of the biggest things for me starting out was reading the manuals for both my synths and my DAW and knowing it inside and out because I didn't want anything to get in the way of me producing the best music that I could. And I think because of that, like knowing the exact parameters and what everything does in a synth, you can kind of reverse engineer and be able to hear it because you know what could create something like that. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And, and even just understanding synthesis, like, uh, and, and I don't know, like I know subtractive synthesis, I have no idea how FM works. Uh, I, I can't use it for the life of me. Like I just can't, um, it's not something I've looked into. But with subtractive, like you can, if you know how to make a plug, you know, you have a wave, uh, maybe a saw wave, and then you run it through a filter, pull the filter down, apply an envelope to that filter, make it sound like a plug. And then if you hear a plug sound and it's like, oh, that's got like more of a transient to it. How do you make that kind of plug? If you know that you can apply a pitch envelope, like a very short, short decay, and that will give it more of a transient. Like, you know, these little things that you can, you can hear a sound in a song and be like, oh, they probably did this. And then you try it and it either works or it doesn't. You try something else. I think the way that I approach things like that, it's almost like a problem solving for me where I'm like, oh, this pluck sound is wide. How could it be wide? Is it stereo imaging? Mm. Is it detuned voices? Is it the Haas effect? I kind of like go through all the different options for like exactly like you said, like what is this? I've got a normal pluck sound, but it has a little bit more of a transient on it. Where could this be coming from? Is it something to do with the resonance? Is there modulation on the volume? Is there modulation on the pitch that's giving it that nice little snap? And I know these different ways to be able to get more transient out of a pluck because I've reverse engineered presets and I've experimented myself to create sounds similar to that. So I can pull those things out of my toolbox whenever I need to use them. Yeah. So to sum up, I think, I think two really important things, primarily learn how your synth works and, and what things mean, because I mean, it's going to aid in the next step, which is reverse engineering. Cause if, if you are reverse engineering without knowledge, uh, you'll learn but you won't be able to communicate to anyone else 
uh, or you won't really understand theoretically what's going on, which I think is just an more inefficient. Cool. Good question. And shout out to William. He's, he's like been through workflow foundations. He loves the course. Uh, just got the Ableton workflow Bible too. You're the man. So let's just talk about the Ableton workflow Bible quickly. Two days ago, we launched this Ableton workflow Bible and a bunch of people have got it so far, far and are loving it. I want to ask you a question to begin with, and then we'll, we'll talk a bit more about the product, but what led you to create it? I think when I initially decided to write the Ableton workflow Bible, I wanted to write something. I wanted to write an educational product. I think I was partially inspired by your producer's guide to workflow and creativity, but I looked around and I was like, what do I know better than anything else? And if you're around me in the studio, I think the thing that you would notice more than anything is how fast I work. Like I remember I would be doing like beat sessions at Icon and kids would be looking at my screen like, what the hell is that kid doing? Just because all this stuff is so subconscious, <laughs> I'd be working so quick. And, you know, I'm good at other areas of production, but that was the one that I felt like I am best suited to teach because I know it the best. So I think stepping back, that's probably the main reason that I decided to write the Ableton Workflow Bible, just because I knew this better than anything else. And I thought that people could legitimately use these techniques. I think, you know, one of the testimonials talked about this, where he's like, this is the stuff that would take you years to kind of stumble upon. You know, not all of it's necessary, yeah, yeah. but all of it's going to help. And I think that was one of the assets of kind of being around producers for so long as I picked up so many of these tips. For sure. I, th I think, you know, like editing the book, two things came to mind because uh, I edited and designed the book. And so I was reading through all this stuff and I've been using Ableton since I was like 16, 15, 16. So about six years. Uh, and I was picking up stuff where I'm like, if I knew this, it would have saved me hours or it would have saved me like all this frustration. So that was cool. And the other thing is like the thing that's between the ideas in your head, the musical ideas, whether they're melodies or, or chords or just whatever sounds in your head and in reality, like tangible form. The one thing that's between that or those is your DAW, Ableton, if you use Ableton. And so if you work inefficiently in that, you're going to, you had a massive disadvantage. And and I talk about that on the sales page, you know, like I, <laughs> the story, I, I woke up one morning. Yeah, I woke up one morning and I had this melody playing in my head. I remember this so vividly, like I woke up, the sun was shining, this awesome like melody playing, which was quite summer sounding. What a surprise, you know. I was like, awesome, try getting it down. I was actually using FR Studio at the time, but I, I just worked too slowly. Like I couldn't get it down fast enough. And it sucked. Like I lost it. And and you think about how many times you have ideas in your head. If you work slowly, you can't get it done fast enough. Like you've lost them. But beyond that, it's just, it's frustrating when you work slowly and you put yourself at a disadvantage creatively because you don't know how to use certain techniques that may improve ideas or help you generate other ideas. And I think with that, there's a reason so many producers quit in their first three to six months or you know, I feel like we get a lot of comments and emails from people that are like, hey, I've tried music production before and it hasn't really worked out for me. And I think part of the reason is because there's a gap between that idea in your head and putting it down in your DAW. And I think that's I remember that was the exact reason that I got in, you know, when I was looking up tutorials, I'm like, I have these cool ideas in my head. How do I put them down? And I think most people start with that. I remember I was listening to um, an interview with Ill Gates that talked about why it's so important to have a fast workflow. And he was talking about how he was he was away on tour and is like, I'm pretty sure it was his dog that was sick. And he was away on tour, I believe in the Middle East. And his dog passed away right after a show. He got like a text from a friend and he's like, I wanted to capture that emotion. So if I didn't have a fast workflow and I couldn't write as fast as I could, I wouldn't have been able to capture that emotion and I would have been crushed. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. think, you know, anyone that's been in this for a while knows how fleeting inspiration and creativity can be sometimes. And if you have to spend a half hour to an hour setting up before you even start, it's gone. Oh yeah, it just kills it. I can remember plenty of times where I felt that, you know, you listen to a song, maybe it's Spotify Discover, you come across a song and you're like, this is awesome. And you just want to get in the studio. By studio, I mean like stay in the same place because my studio is my bedroom. Um, <laughs> 
and, you know, like open up Ableton and then set all the stuff up and, and you're just, it's mundane and it's administrative and organizational and you just, it's not fun. Uh, and, and you just lose that moment and that sucks. There's so many things that can kind of get in the way outside of being able to work fast in Ableton. And this is one of the things that we talk a little bit about in the Ableton workflow Bible is not just like tips and tricks for working fast, but it's just optimizing your workflow as much as you can. Like we talk a little bit about default templates. Like I remember the first time that I set up a default template in Ableton, I had like four different serum patches, like three contact pianos. And it took me like 10 minutes to open up the goddamn project. And I'm like, well, how is this optimize my creativity? If I'm like, oh, I've got an idea. Well, Ableton needs a minute. So this is out now. Uh, it's launched it two days ago and just want to talk about the packages a little bit. Um, so the book packages, this, if you don't want to spend that much money or you just want the basics, this is going to help you out. It has the book, um, itself, the Ableton workflow Bible, which is 100 pages of, of these tools, these techniques, um, and what we call secrets that are just going to help you optimize your workflow, work more quickly, um, and, and be more creative. But also included with that is the Ableton Workflow Bible 30-Day Mastery Plan. And this is just a guide that takes you through the book uh, step by step in one month uh, to to help you get the most out of the book, to help you follow like a system or, or a plan. Because what a lot of people will do is they'll buy ebooks or, or courses and they just won't, or they'll take too long to go through it or they won't know how or what pace to go through it. So that's just going to help people with that. Uh, and then we have the standard package, which is all of that plus two extra video lectures. Um, one of those video lectures is uh, finding your flow, 10 strategies to help you finish more music. The other is active listening, how to learn from other music, which I believe is about 45 minutes long. Yeah, um, it's like a full video course, kind of breaking down what exactly is active listening. And then I like teach you a strategy to break down other music and also to recreate it. And I go through an example of doing that as well. I think you guys will really like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I scanned through it, it was, it was amazing. Uh, and then there's the pro package, which includes those two video lectures, uh, plus an extra video lecture on how to find and, and develop your own sound. Uh, it also includes a 30 day creativity challenge, uh, which is essentially just a set of creative prompts uh, would you say that I would agree I think I talk I talk a little bit about this in the book where it's sometimes good to have restraints just to get you thinking outside the box like I think so many people will reach out talking about how they struggle how to start tracks and it's okay to have just a little bit of something and I think that's what the creative prompts really are they're giving you something to kind of attach your ideas to and then you can kind of go off from there for sure yeah uh, and then there's three Ableton Live template projects to learn from. These are fully produced, fully mixed. Um, they sound amazing, I think, and all in the genre of future bass. Uh, and then there's like a drum sample pack that you've made, a vocal pack, uh, audio effect racks, a Got serum a lot preset of time on my pack. Hands, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, a Juno 106. Yeah. Yeah, Juno 106 um, sampler stuff. So there's a bunch of stuff in there. Well, for the next five days, sorry, uh, you can get a 20% discount on the pro package. Normally it's $99 US, uh, but for now it's $79. Um, so that's a bunch of stuff in there. You're getting the book, 100 plus pages. You're getting the mastery plan, three video lectures, 30 day creativity challenge, Ableton Live template projects, and all the sample packs, serum preset pack, uh, and free updates for life. So if we ever make an update, if we revamp the product, if we launch a new version, which um, inevitably we will, you will get free access to that. Awesome. Uh, so next question. So I've got one more from Facebook from Ellis. And I think we can answer this question pretty quick, but I feel like we could jump off of it. And it's when you start producing, how important is it to treat your room acoustically? In all honesty, I've never acoustically treated my room. At the same time, um, I'm not a professional artist in the sense of like I'm not releasing super consistently and like trying to make it full time as an artist. So there's a difference there. I think starting out, it's probably not a good use of, if you have the money, sure, but like probably not a good use of time or money. Um, I think 
the way I see it is like first buy software, actually buy it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, and then buy like decent headphones because most people will have a good laptop or computer. And then what I would do is start learning. And at some point very early on, pay if you've got the extra money pay for like a few coaching sessions with someone that's going to help you out immensely um this is a recent thing that i've kind of like adhered to and start preaching now is like that the power of coaching because it can save you months of time um just to have someone say oh you don't really need to be focusing on that or like yeah your music is quite good maybe you should learn this at the moment um personalized custom feedback I think that was definitely one of the biggest things that came out of me going to Icon Collective is having these mentors and like some of them were phenomenal established producers. Some of them were still good producers, but just having somebody outside that knows enough to be like, hey, you shouldn't be focusing on this. This is what you should be focusing on instead will save you so much time. Should you be focusing on mastering in your first three months? No, like there's so much other stuff that you should get to before then. But I think a lot of people just try to squeeze it into as small of a time frame as they can and end up making their journey a little bit longer than it should be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As for the question, like I don't, I don't have really any experience with acoustic treatment. I do think it's important. Uh, and, you know, there are people out there who'll spend like $10,000 on monitors and not treat their room, which is just makes no sense to me. I think one thing that's kind of related to that, and I've gotten this question a couple of times where people want to know what gear they need to start, where they're like, oh, I can't produce because I don't have a sub in my room or like, oh, I'm not at my monitor, <laughs> so I can't produce. And I get this from so many people. That's not not even just an excuse that their music's not mixed well, just the reason that they're not making music at all. And I think, oh, Yes, you know, the producers at the top do have these nice fancy studios, but before they got there, they were still producing really good music on their Amazon M Audio $80 cheap speakers. Like if you look at like the studio setup, I don't know, there was like an in the studio with Porter Robinson for his Spitfire EP. And it was his like $40 computer monitor speakers. And then it was just like the rest of his yeah. room because that's what he made it on. So I think understanding that that kind of gear, like having external synths or having an acoustically treated room and nice monitors can help, but it's not necessary for you to be producing top quality music. And I think a lot yeah. of people like don't realize it, but they're kind of using that as an excuse. Like, oh, I can't, I can't mix because I don't have a sub. I'm like, a lot of people can mix very, very well and can mix professionally just doing it on even earbuds. For sure. And I think even more fundamental is like, what are you trying to achieve with your music? Because... Do monitors help you write better music in terms of like melodies and chord progressions? Not really. And like the Porter Robinson EP, like I don't think it was the best mixed album in the world. Um, but the songwriting and like even even like a few of those other tracks, like to me they're a little bit too compressed, whatever, a little bit too dirty. I'm not the only one who thinks that though. Well, compared to some, someone like Maddie on, you know, yeah, who, whose mixes are very, very powerful and clean. But at the end of the day, like, are you going to be known for your music being extremely well mixed or extremely well written? The answer is the latter. Like there's music from, you know, trance music from like the early 2000s that if you listen to it now, you're like, oh man, that's horribly mixed. Like that is just not good. But there's still popular tracks and you don't even think about that when you're listening to it really because you're like, oh, that melody is so amazing. You can also get other people to mix your music. Like this is what a lot of people just don't even think about. You can get your music mixed. There's nothing wrong with that. That's controversial. People be like, oh, that's, you know, you're not doing all the work. Just because you're a bedroom producer doesn't mean you need to do every single thing in the song. Yeah. I think it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the like integrity side of it. It depends what you want to be as an artist. Like if you're comfortable having other people mix and master your stuff, that's going to be the difference between you staying in your bedroom and going on tour, go do it. Exactly. Exactly. So one other thing, kind of what you were saying earlier is how it's much more important to have a better song than it is a better mix. Like if you go on SoundCloud and any of those kind of like genre named SoundCloud artist channels where all the music just sounds the exact same, it's mixed good. But like, mm. am I going to be caring about any of those songs a week from now? No. 
but I can give you so many songs that have a shitty mix, but they're creative and well-written, and those are going to stay with me longer. It doesn't matter how good your mixing is. If your songwriting isn't up to par, no one's going to care about your music a week from now. So invest time on what's going to make or break your career, and then you can always either get better at mixing later, or like Sam said, get somebody else to work on your mixing for you. Especially if you're appealing to non-producers. I mean, like when have you heard a non-musician, like non-music person say, oh, this mix is really clean. No one ever says that. It's like, like what they say is, I love this song or like, I love how catchy this is or I love how this makes me feel yeah. or, you know, I love the lyrics. So that's what's really important at the end of the day. But with that said, there are producers out there who I have a lot of respect for uh, and, and many of you may be listening to this. Your goal is to make music for producers uh, Porter Robinson, I think, calls it production porn um, or Matzo. So your goal is to be respected as a producer and, uh, for your technical abilities um, or your chops. That's awesome. And in that case, the mixing matters a lot because you are going to be judged on that. You know, like, like noisier, um, like that kind of stuff. That's when it becomes really, really important, I think, because you're appealing to people who are going to be listening up for that and who do get like a lot of joy from listening to a sound you've made and go, oh, that's so clean. Actually, I think Porter Robinson talked about that, going back to him, where he talked about the difference between making music for producers and making music for himself. And I remember in an interview, he was talking about how with his earlier music, kind of pre-Worlds, he was almost making music to impress other producers, to be like, hey, look, I can do this too. And then with Worlds, he kind of like shifted into making music more for himself. Like, obviously that kind of relaunched his career, but if you look back to when he released that, he wasn't sure what people's response was going to be. He didn't know if that was going to yeah. break or not. And, you know, luckily for him it did, but regardless, I don't think it would have mattered for him just because he started making music more for himself. And is it bad to be making music for other producers? I don't really think so, but I think it's important to understand who your target audience is. You know, like in any yeah, business, yeah. you should know what your ideal consumer is. And are you making music for a top 40 crowd, for an EDM crowd, yeah. or for like a producer crowd? Those are going to be three different markets. And the way that you invest your time should be changed for each of those. And I think there are just some genres that lend themselves to higher respect from other producers. Like if you look at someone like BT, yeah. he obviously has a, a large audience that are not producers that listen to his music uh, because they like the complexity or whatever. But obviously that's also more impressive than, you know, like a, a your typical electro house song because like you can listen to it and, and you notice that like a lot of effort has gone into it or um, you're just hearing these things that you've never really heard before. I think there's very few artists that are able to do that and do that well where they're able to impress both the producer community and also a mainstream audience. Like, I think you might've talked about this in a previous podcast where Flume, I think is the perfect example of this, where he is well-respected among the production community, but also can appeal to a mainstream audience. I think, I think it was funny yeah, for me going yeah. home for a Christmas break and like hearing all my friends that aren't big into EDM listening to the new Flume album. And I'm like, interesting. Yeah. But yeah. he's one of the few people that's able to kind of cross over and do that well. For sure. Yeah, you could say the same about Skrillex and, and a few other guys as well. Definitely. Um, that's super interesting. Cool. Um, let's take a question from, from Twitter. I've got a few here. So Gabe Miller asks, do you have any tips for balancing work and production? Or balancing work and production slash generating ideas efficiently? That confuses me a little bit, but let's, do you have any tips for balancing work and production? Let's just answer that. Let's start with that one and then we can maybe jump into the other one later. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Connor, do you have any tips? I think two things for balancing work and production. One is prioritizing and the other one is scheduling time and being efficient with that time. As it comes to scheduling your time, I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but I feel like most people can kind of go around to a schedule versus being like, oh, like I haven't really produced too much this week. But if you're like, hey, 
today's Monday. On Tuesday, I'm going to go from seven to nine o'clock and I've got two hours then. And you kind of schedule that time with yourself. You're guaranteed to produce results. And, you know, Mm. so much in goal setting is based off having concrete goals. And part of that is having concrete scheduling and being able to set yourself to that. So I'm sure you can talk about that a little bit more. And then the other thing is prioritizing. Like, let's just say you work a nine to five you're up at eight, you're probably not getting back home till like six or seven. If you, if you like eat dinner and then go to the gym, you're done by like eight and that's a lot of your day. Mm. And if you have like a girlfriend and any other activities outside of that, you kind of have to start to make sacrifices. And if you're working a nine to five and you see yourself wanting to be a full-time musician, you are going to have to make sacrifices. It's possible. So many other people have done it, but you do have to understand that it doesn't come without any repercussions. Like Getter talked about this once. I'm getting inspiration from Getter. I never thought this would happen, but he (laughs) said in a Facebook post, he's like, I'm happy that I haven't, like, I wasn't going out with my friends in college. And I stopped that. I had kind of a similar thing in college where I wanted to be working on music and I was also finishing college early. And I'm like, this is what it's going to take. I understood it and I ended up sacrificing some of my relationships and I gained others in the process. But I understood that this is what it's going to take to be able to be full-time making a career off music is being able to prioritize and be like, is this more important? Do you want to keep your Xbox One around or would you rather sell that, have more time and some money to spend on studio gear? I think it just comes to really committing and knowing what that takes. Like, it's not easy and there's a reason so many people fail and so many, so few people succeed. 100% and I want to speak to that uh, prioritizing. And a lot of people will say, I don't have the time, full stop. And then it's like, okay, but you're watching Netflix two hours a night. Yeah. It's true. And no offense to you as an American, but like, it's pretty bad over there. I don't know if you've seen the statistics. (laughs) I mean, I haven't seen the stats, but I see my friends and I know it's bad. And I think part of it is a lot of people don't even realize because that's normal. Well, you know what it is? It's this, this is what I, this is my assumption. There's two things actually. The first is I've worked all day, so I deserve it. And it's like, okay, that may be true. But you, if you, if you're saying that you cannot complain about the fact that you're not making enough music because you're making the decision, not work on music and watch TV instead. But to be more like gracious, I think the, one of the biggest issues is people come home from work they have tried to make music but they're just they can't focus a good book to read is deep work by cal newport uh because he kind of talks about the fact that being able to focus is a skill and it's like a muscle so when you like running is a perfect example i got into i got into running like last year and before that i sucked what I did is I ran way too fast, but I could only run for like 10 minutes. And it's like, I look pretty fit. But then I actually started into running because I had a friend who uh, was like planning on joining the Air Force. And he, he was like, oh, do you want to do that whole training routine together? Which I said I would. I committed to like three months earlier. So, like, okay. Uh, and then like now I, I can run two hours and it's all good. But that's something that's built up over time. And I think it's the same with focus. Uh, actually, I know it's the same with focus because it's, it's a mental thing. So, you know, yeah, if you're, if you, you've been stuck in this like routine of work, try to make music or don't try it all and just watch TV, it is going to be hard to make a change. It is going to be hard to say, I'm just not going to watch TV. I'm just going to work on music instead for two hours. And in fact, if you try that straight away, you will probably fail. Uh, you will probably revert back to old habits. So you have to realize that this is something that gets easier over time, that it's, it's a muscle that you build up. Uh, so just if you, at the moment you are at like zero, like you just aren't spending time on music at all apart from the weekend, start smaller, start with like half an hour, get it done. Don't feel guilty about it. Do your thing. Do that for a couple of weeks and then just start uh, bumping it up. Kind of going along with what you said is a lot of what that takes is cutting out all of the unnecessary time within your day. Like, I remember I had a teacher tell me, he was like, what do you guys do when you wake up? What's the first thing? And everyone was like, oh, like make some coffee, get some breakfast, work on tunes. He's like, no, you look at your phone. And everyone in the class was like, (laughs) God damn, he's so right. 
you know, that's 10, yeah. 15 minutes right there. Yeah. Except if, if you're me, like I, like this morning, like I, I sit on the toilet, man, I check my email, redeeming the time, Multitasking. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I think it's real. I think a lot of people like, um, like this morning I was working at a coffee shop and I feel like one of the most common conversations is like, Oh, what have you seen this new Netflix show? It's funny because like both me and my girlfriend don't really watch Netflix and I feel like we're left out of so many conversations because we don't. Yeah. yeah. But if you think about people like, oh, I binged watched the new Game of Thrones season, like Game of Thrones is awesome. I've seen episodes. I wish I could get into it, but a year from now, I'm not going to give yeah. a shit about season seven. Exactly. I mean, I haven't watched the last two or three seasons. Just I, I just I feel no desire to. Yeah. You know, like it gets to that point. Well, I think it takes a minute to switch over to that. I think exactly like you said, it's not going from zero to a hundred. It's just starting small. Like if you watch two hours of TV at night, switch to an hour and then try to be more efficient with your time. Otherwise, like you can't, it's like any quote unquote addiction. You can't just go cold Turkey with it. I think this is a bigger thing, but you, I firmly believe that you get more satisfaction, like lasting satisfaction and fulfillment out of production rather than consumption. How do you feel if you're like, if you spend the whole day binge watching a TV show and you get to the end of the day, you're just not going to feel that proud of yourself. Like you're just not going to feel like you worked at something. Uh, you're not going to really feel tired uh, or you might feel tired, but it's like not, you know, that you know, the good tired, you know, when you get to the end of the day and you're like, just grinded it out and like you're exhausted, but like, you're happy, exhausted, like you're like, yeah, I crushed it today. And you, you put your head down onto the pillow and you're just like, you just fall asleep and it's just the best thing. Like that's what I'm talking about. There is a satisfaction that comes from like producing anything. It doesn't have to be music, anything that can't be gained from just consuming stuff. It's like a different kind of satisfaction. It's, it's like I made something, you know, yeah. I worked at something and it was hard, but it was good. It's like working out. It's the same kind of thing. It's like. Definitely. It's like if you're planning on running 10 miles and then you finish that feeling so great. It was shitty to get yes. there. Yeah. And it's the same thing when it comes to producing, except for sometimes this journey is a little bit longer than, you know, the hour <laughs> takes to run that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of studies that show that too, where it's just like long-term happiness is built off these small little steps versus these like tiny little plunges into like whatever kind of instant satisfaction you can get. And it's not just like, mm. this isn't a problem just for music producers. I think a lot of people mm. struggle with mm. this and it's made increasingly hard with all the different distractions that are around that can kind of pull you away from it. Yeah. I mean, we do live in that kind of age and, and I don't want people to think that I'm saying consumption is bad, like as a whole, but I definitely think that, um, cause I honestly, I could probably do a bit more of it. Like, I think it's, it's a good tool to like guard against burnout, you know, just sitting down and like watching a movie maybe every now and again. Um, but I do think like, I, I don't think many people have that problem. You know, like I don't think, yeah. like, I, I think there's probably 5% of people who are like, yeah, I need to like produce a little bit less and consume a little bit more. Like for most people it's, I need to consume a little bit less and produce a, little, a lot more. Um, I think I might fall into that a little bit. Like I can't sit down for a movie. I struggle mm, to say I find it hard to, I can like, I can watch maybe like an, it's too much effort. It's, it's an investment. I like get <laughs> in my own head. I'm like, how long is this? Two hours? No, I'm out. Yeah. Give me like a 40 yeah, minute or something. HBO go episode. Anything more than that. I'm like, I yeah, can't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same man. I'm the same. And part of me doesn't like that. I'm like, I just want to be able to like sit down and watch a movie. Yeah. But like, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, that's why you see so many people at the top that just literally can't turn it off. Cause once you almost get to that yeah. level, it's like hard to kind of get out. And that's why people burn out. Which I think is dangerous as well, actually. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, I think this is interesting. Like I think there's definitely a balance and I don't know where that balance is, but I think it's better to err on the side of like doing too much. Yeah. You know, cause you can recover from a burnout. It might suck, but like you can, but you can't, you can't recover from like, years of lost time that you've spent just consuming um mindless stuff like because like there, there is something to be said about watching good films and like good tv shows like it's appreciation of art it can be inspiring and so on and so on but not everyone does that like <laughs> 
So good question though, Gabe. Good question. Uh, I have written an article on that actually. It's, it's called how to make more time for music and crush your goals. So if you search it on Google, it will come up. Uh, and it kind of just talks about that in a more um, deep work focus, building those hours up and so on and so on. Next question is from, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this. It's obviously an artist name, Chantaro. And they ask what to do if you're stuck with a pile of finished tracks, but you don't like them anymore. I'll let you handle this one. I think there's two things that can kind of solve that. One of them is time. And the other thing is an outside opinion. Myself, like a lot of people can be very critical of their own music. And I think I always fall into that trap where like I'll finish songs and like a week later I'll hate it. And then I'll take some time off maybe a month later and I'll look at the project. I'm like, why didn't I do anything with this? And I think it can be so easy. You know, if I played you your favorite song in the world right now for a day straight, you would hate it by the end of the day. And it's the same thing when you're producing. If you listen to a song for 10, 20, 30 hours, there's a good chance that you're going to kind of get sick of it. So I think the easiest thing is always for me is just time. Take some time off. You know, if a month or two goes by and you still don't like it, then you, you, you probably need to take a step back and look at your production process. But the other more short term solution is to get outside feedback. You know, grab somebody, it doesn't have to be another producer, it just could, it could just be one of your friends and ask them for feedback on the track just to get an outside opinion and almost just to get a little bit of an ego boost too. I think it's okay to have a nice little ego boost. You know, we're always in our like tiny little producer coves, a little like self-conscious little holes and it's okay to yeah, have that every yeah. once in a while. It's okay to have, show your tracks to your mom and have her love them. Like you kind of need that. You want your good feedback, but it's okay to have those people in your life too. So. I would say that's the other thing is just trying to get outside feedback and trying to get as much support as you can. I like that. I think it's a very common thing to experience this because, and if you're not experiencing experiencing it, uh, there may be a chance that you're not you're not developing, like you're not getting better as an artist. So it is a good thing. Like it is a good thing. Uh, one thing you can do if you if you don't like the tracks at all and you have no plans on doing anything with them is salvage what you can from them. So take out what you like, put it into your library, build your library. If you're not doing that, start, uh, take samples out, take loops you've made for future projects. Uh, that helps reduce the waste, uh, both in time and, and you know what you've actually made. I think with that, don't, even if you end up never using the track again, don't view that as wasted time. Mm. You know, whether mm. you're doing what Sam said, which is to salvage the tracks, you're still improving and bettering yourself as a producer. You're still learning, still developing your skills. So, you know, even if you're not necessarily going to do anything, even if you're not going to release it. And I feel like this is something that a lot of beginners struggle with too, is like they'll fully finish their first song and then they try to go too hard. We're like, it's probably, it might not go anywhere, but just be happy that you're getting closer to whatever your production goals are going to be. So don't view that as wasted time. So let's, let's push through some of these Twitter ones. Cause there's a few, we can do them quickly. Cool. Uh, Total Antiki, this is his name, at Total Antiki, asks, when people go full-time, quote-unquote, and don't have to have a non-music-related job, what exactly are they doing and how are they making money? I feel like specifics are always glossed over in the interviews. Are they making income from shows, merch, streams, other ways? It seems like such a big leap that people put into one sentence. When I read that, I was like, true, because in... The podcast interviews, it's kind of like, oh yeah, and then I was doing it full time. And there's like a huge amount of information that's just not captured there. I mean, I can't really answer this myself because I haven't been the person who becomes a full-time artist. Um, I can only speak from like grinding the business. A lot of people won't talk about that, I think, because it's kind of boring to them. And like, I won't tell people, if I'm having a conversation with someone, I won't tell people about like the two years with EDM Prod where it wasn't full-time because honestly, it was quite boring. Like yeah. <laughs> a lot of articles, a lot of little failures, um, just a lot of writing, a lot of emailing people, like that's what happens. It's hard to tell though where their income is coming from. But um, I, I think for people who have just started doing it full-time, it's normally shows, normally shows kind of summarizing what you said is you're not seeing what's going on behind the scenes. Like, mm -hmm. um, 
said this guy in the previous interview was talking about how he went full time, but there was a process and he was already like releasing music and playing shows, but it's slowly crossing over between music from, excuse me, revenue from music and then revenue that's not. So like I've got a lot of friends that are working part-time jobs and I used to be, it took me like a little bit of time too before being able to make a full living off music and it's a process. You know, a lot of people will work part-time for a little bit. So, you know, they might be playing some shows, they'll have like two shows a month and make a grand. Yep. It's yep. getting there. Like I've got a friend that's doing that right now. He's working part-time as a busboy. He works like two days a week and then he sells like a couple of different beats during the week and that's it. Mm. You know, he only has to work two days yeah. a week and he's motioning towards full time and he used to not be making any money off music. So it's a process and it kind of, it might seem like people go from zero to a hundred really quick. It's like, oh, you know, I'm full time going on this world tour, just quit my job. Well, there was so much that was going on before then that you're not seeing. For sure. I think two good episodes to listen to. That one there said this guy, uh, two other ones, the one with Arcane Echo. This, it's like two hours and 40 minutes long. It's a long interview. <laughs> Uh, but he talks in depth about how he kind of got to that point. Uh, and also the episode with Conroe, uh, he talks about that as well. And I think a little bit specifically for me, when I used to be doing more of the sample pack stuff, I was working a tutoring job and then I switched to part-time there and then I was doing sample pack production. And then as I started to kind of like build up in that side of things and started to build my connections and get into more of the ghost production side is when I was finally able to quit my job and just go full-time producing. So it took me six months to a year to like make that transition process. And it might be even more for other people if they're trying to make. I would say that's that's pretty good. Like that's quite short. I feel like that's quite short. Obviously it took me, you know, four or five years to get to that point to start. But I think, you know, for a lot of people that are releasing music and then want to turn that into a touring brand, like that's going to take six months to a year at least before you're getting that brand to a point where people are willing to book you at shows. So interesting point on this uh rick snowman author of the dance music manual came on the show he says something very controversial which is that if you don't quit your job to do music you're not committed essentially he didn't put it in those words but i had a lot of people tweet email saying like oh what do you think about this honestly i don't think that's a good approach i just didn't say it on the show because it's like rick snowman you know like yeah (laughs) he's a veteran but I don't think that's a good approach because of the level of stress it puts. And maybe it was easier back in the day. I don't know. I think that thing, you know, you're, you're making a bit of money on the side and you kind of just, it's like scales. It's like once you're making an equal amount of income or close to it from your music and your job, cool, you can start like working less at your day job. I think it's relative. Like for him, committing to music might mean dropping everything and doing whatever it takes. But I'm definitely yeah. not that type of persona and I don't think you are either. Like I can't I can't work I can't work if I don't have a place to sleep tonight. Like there's people that can yeah, do yeah. that. And like I think Skrillex is gonna is an example of somebody that just kinda like yeah. dropped everything and was like maxing out credit cards and like sleeping on people's couches, but that worked for him, but I just know my persona. I can't do that. Like, I don't yeah, think I can yeah. put my heart and soul into a track if I don't know where I'm like sleeping that night or if I like don't know how I'm going to be able to like pay my rent at the end of the month. And I think some people could, and I think kind of one of the reasons people might want to drop everything is that it's almost glamorized. It's like, they're like, oh, you're yes. not a real artist. You're working at a coffee shop or something. Two words, Gary Vaynerchuk. That's it. Like it, it's it is over glamorized. Does Gary um, talk about that a little bit? Oh, it, it kind of not that specifically, but yeah, it's very much like that. I just do it. Like it's, it's your only time. But he doesn't say that to give him credit. He's kind of like work your day job, come home and work from like seven pm till two am, which is also going to like push you over the edge. But anyway, yeah. I think what you said about personality is very true, and I kind of retract my statement. There is no right way to do this. Uh, some people like like I lean towards that I perform better under pressure so um maybe like I can remember one time with with EDM Pro it was probably July 2015 August it was full time but only just like it was enough money to live off I move into the city into Wellington and like January December January I'm kind of looking at my what's in my bank 
and like what's happening and I'm kind of looking at my outgoings, like how much rent is costing and all this stuff. I'm looking at what's coming up and I'm like, this is not going to work. It's not going to work. I'm going to run out of money. Now, to be fair, like I knew that that wouldn't be the end of the world. I could get a job and stuff. But like at that moment, I wasn't stressed. I was just like, I need to launch something. I need to make something. I need to, you know. Um, so some people perform well under that kind of pressure. Like it actually helps other people. And there's no right or wrong way. Other people in that kind of situation will freeze up. So it's about knowing and like most, like you you normally know who you are, you know, when you get to like 18, you normally know how you perform best, I think. And you just haven't had any life experience at all. So yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Glad you brought that up. Going back to, so I mentioned my friend from earlier that's part-time that like works two days a week. He also lives in the family room of a two bedroom apartment. So he has his bed mm. just in the family room and he pays 250, 300 bucks a month to live in LA, which is saying wow. something, you know, that's pretty cheap for Los Angeles, but God, I couldn't do that. I, you know, I need my yeah, space when yeah. I come home to, and it's, you know, he's struggled with it, but you know, he's the type of person that is committed enough that can actually deal with that. But I would rather like know that I can come home to my bed, even if I have an extra, you know, an hour less to work on music, because I know that when I'm actually working on music, I don't have to worry about these types of things and I'm going to be enjoying it. And knowing me, I'm going to be making better music, too. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Next question. Should I concentrate on producing? This is an easy one to answer. Should I concentrate on producing in one genre or rather concentrate on having a sound but not limit self to genres? Um, you should concentrate on having a sound, but not limit self to genres. That's simple. That's my answer. Definitely not the only person that's asked that question, but sounds and styles change far too often, far too quick that there's just no way to make it by sticking in one lane. Um, you'll also learn way faster if you're making different styles of music. I think there's one more question from Twitter. I struggle with creating consistent quality promotional content to go with my music do you have any tips on how to come up with ideas so i'm assuming that you mean quality promotional content to go with music i'm assuming you mean like song teasers or like images or stuff like that um i, I assume maybe i'm wrong i don't know um i'm, gu- I'm guessing you're right too but that's like an interesting question yeah. if that's what he's saying yeah, for sure. In terms of coming up with ideas, I think it's pretty easy. Uh, look at what other people are doing. Find 10 artists that have really good social media and, and follow them. Um, in terms of creating that content, there are a few things that can help. Uh, like for EDM prod, for all the graphics, Canva is normally used. That is C-A-N-V-A.com. Uh, great tool. If you suck at design, you'll still be able to put something together that's decent. Um, for videos yeah that's beyond me uh (laughs) if you guys if any of you are in high school or college i'm sure you go to school with somebody that just got into photoshop or illustrator or indesign and is just getting around to like making graphics and videos and you know it's similar to how like producers will do anything to get their feet in the door a lot of times graphic designers are the same way too so yes you know i think with that it's so easy to connect with people in person so i'd recommend trying to reach out to those types of people And with that, like Sam said, look at your favorite artists, figure out the ways that they do it and copy it. Like if they have like a cool certain style teaser video, do something similar. Yeah. Um, Good question. Good question. It is worth reading. It's more of a business oriented book. Talking about Gary Vaynerchuk, here's a book called Jab, 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 Right Hook, which is all about social media. The, The issue with a lot of the stuff though, social media advice is it gets outdated very fast. Like even that book has some stuff in it that you shouldn't really do anymore. So just be aware of that. Um, see what other people are doing and listen to like other podcasts in that space. Um, that is it for Twitter. Did we have any other questions from elsewhere? So on Facebook, we got a question from James English who essentially asked if someone could only spend one hour a day to work on music, what would you have them focus on? It all depends on your goals and where you're at. I would recreating music. I think the return on investment and in on that is huge, like massive. Um, it's just hard. It's just hard, and that's why most people won't do it. 
in my experience. But the people who have, like, they make immense progress. Yeah. And it, it all depends on your goals. Like, if you want to just do this for fun and do it as a hobby, then recreating music, because it's such a grind, because um, it's closer to deliberate practice than most people think, which is hard. If you're just trying to do it as a hobby, then maybe that's not the best thing. Like, it, it, it all depends on your goals. It's out of context, it's a hard question to answer. Um, because if it was like, I want to do this full time in two years. It's like, wow, figure out a way to spend more than an hour on music. I would definitely agree. I think with that, like maybe during the week you can only have an hour, but if you're really prioritizing music, you should be able to set aside more time on the weekends. Like I'm guessing you're not working a seven day job. So, you know, maybe some of your weekdays you're spending more time recreating songs and, you know, maybe reading up on some plugins, looking at tutorials. And then on the weekends is when you have your like big creative sessions where you've done all the busy yeah. work and you can really focus and set yourself down because you have a little bit more time to experiment and play around with stuff. Maybe some people are working seven days a week, like investment bankers. But if you're one of those people, you can just hire a ghost producer and you'll be sweet. So that's it. That is our Q&A episode. Uh, it's been a while since we did a Q&A episode. I think the last one was 50, but it was by myself and no one listened to it because no one wants to hear me talk for an hour. So thank you all for listening. If you want to check out Ableton Workflow Bible, if you want to get that discount, uh, go to abletonworkflowbible.com. You can find it there. If you have any questions about it, uh, you can email info at edmpro.com uh, and Connor or I will get back to you. If you like this episode, you like the Q&A format, uh, let us know via Twitter at edmpro or via email. Uh, let us know and we'll think about doing another one in the future because it's super fun to do, I think. Definitely. And I get a lot of questions via email, so it's a good way to kind of answer them all at once in a way where more people can hear the answers and um, perhaps get advice if they have the same questions. 